Good morning, good morning. Welcome to radio. Show of hands, you've heard of Bo Jackson. You've heard of Bo Jackson. Some of y'all are showing how old you are. All right. Bo Jackson, I think you can make the arguments the greatest athlete that ever lived. Now, there's some men in here that would probably want to meet and discuss that. You've got somebody else in your mind. He's the only guy to ever be an all-star, Major League Baseball and professional football. He was a stud. All right. 1985, he won the Heisman Trophy at Auburn. He says this about his father wound. That's going to be a key phrase we keep going back to today. My father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Can you imagine? Here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes in the country. And I'm sitting in the locker room envying every one of my teammates whose dad would come in and talk, have a drink with them after the game. I never experienced that. So you got Bo Jackson at the top of the athletic ladder, and he's envying some of his scrub teammates because of the relationship they have with their dads, and he's at the top athletically. How about Jens Pulver? Jens Pulver's nickname was Little Evil. He was a five foot seven lefty who won the very first UFC fighting championships. Now, I know none of you Christians watch that, right? Because it gets out of control, but he's the first one to win. He became a Christian later in life and he wrote an autobiography. And in his book, he talks about winning the championship and this mob of people are swarming the ring, trying to put the championship belt on them. You've seen these boxing scenes before, right? Like you've watched Rocky. Everybody rushes the scene to get to the champion. Someone sticks a microphone in his face and said, you just won. How do you feel? This incredible fighter had grown up in a horrible family situation. In fact, so bad that when he was seven years old, his dad put a pistol in his mouth before removing the pistol and saying, and I quote, my son wasn't worth the bullet. That's the type of dad he grew up with. So he's in the ring and he's just won and they put a microphone in his face and a belt around his waist and on national television, he shouts through his tears, see dad, I did amount to something. It's like every time he stepped in the ring, he was fighting his dad, fighting back against his father wound that his dad had given him. So I'm going to get in your business a little bit today. I don't want to, all right? The text, the scripture this morning is going to require me to get up in your business a little bit today. So let me just ask you a real personal question. When you hear the word dad, what do you think about? Many of us in the room have great dads, dads that loved us and sacrificed for us and blessed us, other Others of us hear the word dad and there's immediate pain. The word dad might as well be a cuss word. When you hear the word immediate sadness and hurt from the wound that your dad left comes to your mind, whether it was an in- intentional wound from him or an unintentional wound. And then I, I imagine the majority of this room would just say, yeah, my dad was okay. He did the best he could. He he was there all the time. He never left our family. He did the best he could. He could have been better. He could have been worse. And I'm pretty thankful for him. And so we've got this whole different set of groups in our room. But I want to make the argument this morning. And I think scripture wants to make the argument this morning that unless your earthly dad's name was Jesus, which would be weird. I'd want to meet you in that case. You have some wounds from your father. You have some, some deficits from your dad. So you've got an outline. I've got a definition of father wound. This is a 
not really a professional term, although professionals are beginning to use it more and more. So here's the definition of father wound that we're going to say over and over today, but you need to be able to relate the definition to the word. And here it is. An ongoing emotional, social, or spiritual deficit. That's what a wound is. It's a deficit. It's a hole ordinarily met in a healthy relationship with that. Ongoing emotional, social, spiritual deficit ordinarily met in a healthy relationship with dad. And because your father is sinful, you have some wounds and some deficits that your dad has left you. And it's not always just pain. It's just things he didn't equip you for. It's things that you see yourself acting the way that he did because he never really taught you how to act any different. He just is who he is. And you are who you are partly because of him. Some of us, have just these little tiny scrapes for wounds because our dads were really good and they were really strong. Others of us have these gaping wounds because our dads weren't very good to us. But at the very least, we could all agree that fathers, that dads have enormous and significant influence over their children, right? We would all at least agree with that. So if you've been with us, we've been studying the life of Joseph. In scripture, we've been going through Genesis, we've been studying his life, and today we're going to take our focus off of Joseph and we're going to zoom in on his dad. We're going to zoom in on Jacob. And so if you've seen these maps where you keep clicking and it keeps getting a little closer, that's what we're going to do to Joseph's dad, Jacob, today. And he is wounding his sons. And we're going to pick out some ways that this father is wounding them, whether it's intentional or unintentional. He's wounding them. And I don't know about you. I would not want anybody to take my worst week as a parent and start plucking out the way I wound my kids and then preaching about it. (laughs) Okay, I I don't want that. And nobody wants that. And I want to be really fair to Jacob. But here's the thing with Jacob, this dad. We picked him up 20 years ago in the story. He's not getting any better. He's not growing. He's not getting any better. In fact, I would make the argument he's getting more bitter in his old age. And you're going to see it in Scripture today. So we're going to look at these father wounds and then... We're going to have tons of application at the end on how to heal, how to deal with it, how to prevent some of these father wounds that we might have going on. So if you've got your Bibles, Genesis 42, we're going to jump in. 42 verse 29. I'll start reading right there in verse 29. When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, They told him everything that had happened to them. Well, what had happened to them? If you haven't been here, I'm going to give you a 30-second recap. 20 years ago, Joseph was 17 years old. His brothers hated him. They threw him in a pit. They faked his death. They tell Jacob, hey, some crazy goat must have eaten him. (laughs) All right? Some wild animal got him. He's dead. Here's his bloody coat to prove it. But they didn't really kill him. What they did was they sold him to some some, uh, traders. And Joseph makes his way to Egypt, and he's a slave in Egypt. He ends up being the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and he's put in charge of the entire land of Egypt, which is very significant because the last couple of weeks we talked about the seven great years of prosperity, right? Joseph was in charge of that. He was in charge of storing all the food, all the grain. Then there's seven years of horrible starvation and famine, and Joseph's in charge of that. He's in charge of making sure people from all over the world get their food, and that's where he's reunited with his brothers 20 years later. His brothers come to Egypt because they're starving and they're looking for some food. And so now he's standing before them, but they don't recognize Joseph. But Joseph recognizes them. So that's where we pick up verse 29. Joseph tells them, he says, I'm going to keep one of the brothers, Simeon, right here in jail. 
you go back and you bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, with you. You bring Benjamin back, and if you bring Benjamin back, everything's going to be okay. If you don't bring Benjamin back, you'll never see my face again. And so he sends him on their way with some food and even puts the money back in the sacks for them. Verse 29. When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, which would have been about a 30-day trip from Egypt. 30 days is a long time on a camel. They told him everything that had happened to them. So this is their recap to their father. The man who was governor of the land, Joseph, spoke very harshly to us, they told him. He accused us of being spies scouting the land, but we said, we are honest men, not spies. We are 12 brothers, son of one father. One brother is no longer with us, and the youngest is at home with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man who was governor of the land told us, this is how I will find out if you were honest men. Leave one of your brothers here. We just talked about this. Leave, leave Simeon here and take grain for your starving families and go on home. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know you were honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother and you may trade freely in the land. And as they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and the father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Now, I understand why these brothers are terrified. Okay? They have done wrong. They've been hiding this secret for 20 years. They know what they did to Joseph 20 years ago, and they've been keeping this secret. Well, then they get back, and there's all this money. They have all this money. And so they're scared. They know that they've done some bad things. They go in front of Joseph, and they say, we're honest men, but they know they're not honest men. And then all of a sudden, they have all this money in their sack. Sometimes we need to be scared when good things happen to us because we have done something wrong to get the good thing. Chuck Swindoll is one of my favorites. He tells a story, a true story, about a man and a woman that go into a KFC. I don't know why they go into a KFC. Chick-fil-A must have been closed. It was a Sunday, all right? So they go into, uh, they go into KFC, and they order two buckets of chicken. Well, instead of getting two buckets of chicken, they go to their picnic table to start eating, and it's two bags full of money, full of cash. And so being the honest guy that this guy is, he takes the money back to the KFC manager. And he says, hey, we ordered some chicken, but we ended up with all of this cash instead. And the manager's like, man, I can't thank you enough for bringing this money back. And it was a simple mistake, right? Cashier goes to grab two bags of chicken, and instead she, bags, she grabs the two bags of cash that they're supposed to take to the bank. And so this manager's like, hey, I'm calling the newspaper. People in this area need to know there's still some honest people left. There's still some honest people left in this land. The guy pulls him to the side. He goes, Please don't call the newspaper. He said, this woman that's with me, I'm married and she's not my wife. <laughs> Please don't call the newspaper. So sometimes folks should be afraid when they get some money, some blessings while they are doing wrong. So I understand why the brothers are scared. They're doing wrong. They're lying. They're not honest. They've kept this secret. They can't enjoy this money because they know they are wrong. Their guilty conscience is in overdrive. It's like trying to, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. Thank you. You can take this piece of junk too. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Good. No, uh, no tornadoes in the, in the speaker anymore? All right, good. So I understand why these guys can't enjoy it. They can't enjoy this money because they've done wrong. They've had this secret for 20 years. They're lying to Joseph. They know they're lying. All of a sudden, they get this blessing. They get this money. They can't enjoy it. It's like when you make a 98 on the test, but you cheated on the test. 
right? Like you can show your parents the 98, but you can't fully enjoy it. It's like trying to enjoy some cash on your tax return when you know you did TurboTax and you lied to get the money, right? Now you're trying to enjoy the money. You can't enjoy it. It's like the Houston Astros trying to enjoy a World Series. You can't. They cheated, right? That's a dig right there. It's like Clemson. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. (laughs) So I understand why the brothers are terrified when this money shows up, but why is Jacob scared? Pay attention to this. The text says the brothers and their father were terrified. I understand why the brothers are terrified. They're lying. Why is Jacob scared? He should be thanking God. His sons were accused of being spies and could have been killed on the spot. Not only do they return safely, they come back with food. The family's starving. They come back with food. They come back with free food. They come back with money. Remember, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. This is a great chance for him to point his sons to God and say, look at God providing for us should be scared of the money. This is a blessing. He doesn't know the lies and stuff that his sons have done. All they got to do is take Benjamin back to Egypt, prove they're telling the truth and all is good. So what does Jacob, the father, the leader of the family do? Well, it's the first father wound. Jacob overreacts. Jacob, the father, the leader of this family overreacts. Verse 36. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too. Everything is going against me. Fathers can wound their children by overreacting. There's a lot of exclamation points in that verse. And there's four of them. So I I don't know if Jacob's yelling. Maybe he's speaking really strongly. What I know is that when I overreact with my kids, I yell. And I yell loud and it can wound them, especially if it's this cumulative effect of me yelling and yelling and yelling. And before you know it, I've got a 15 year old that says, yeah, I grew up in a house with a dad that yelled a lot. That's exactly what Jacob does here. He overreacts. He says, everything is going against me. How selfish does Jacob sound? It's all about him. He's angry. He's not getting what he wants. And he seems to be lashing out at his sons. You want another really good practical reason not to overreact when your kids tell you something? They'll stop telling you stuff, <laughs> right? Like I'm not going to crazy dad again. He'll blow up like he did last time, right? Next time the brothers have something to share with Jacob, they're going to be, hey, remember last time he about had a heart attack? We're not, we're not going to tell him. And so trying to keep a calm face, even if your kids tell you something crazy, is healthy, Because they'll come back and they'll tell you next time. So maybe you grew up with this type of father, the ticking time bomb dad. And you and your siblings walked around on eggshells, not knowing when he was going to go off. And maybe when he drank, it was even worse. And there can be some father wounds from a dad that's always overreacting. Quick temper. Maybe you are this type of father right now with your children. And Jacob has some adversity. He has some things he doesn't want to hear and he completely overreacts and it is clearly wounding his sons. You don't believe me? Let's look at the next verse. Let's watch Reuben, his son's response. Then Reuben said to his father, you may kill my two sons. If I don't bring Benjamin back to you, I'll be responsible for him. And I promise to bring him back. And so Reuben's like, Hey dad, I know Benjamin's your favorite. I know he's your favorite. I'll kill my two boys. If I don't bring them back, that's brilliant. Isn't it Reuben? 
Is that really going to help Jacob killing two of his grandsons? That'll really clean things up. I wonder where Reuben learned to overreact. Where do you think? That's that's all he's ever seen modeled for him. Not an excuse, just is who he is. Because of his father's overreaction. Verse 38. But Jacob replied, my son Benjamin will not go down to Egypt with you. His brother Joseph is dead and Benjamin is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white haired man to his grave. Second father wound we see from Jacob is that he uses hurtful words. He uses hurtful, harmful words. Can you imagine being Reuben and hearing this from your father? Some of you've heard it from your dad. Now, Reuben's idea wasn't great, right? But he's putting himself out there. He's trying to make his dad proud. He's trying to solve the situation in his broken, flawed way. He's trying to lead. And he says, I'll kill my two sons if Benjamin doesn't come back. And, and Jacob looks right at him and goes, Benjamin's the only son I really have. Using these hurtful words. And I want you to feel what Reuben would be feeling. What about me, dad? What about these other 10 guys? What do you mean, Benjamin? is all you have left. I'm starting to really figure out why they threw Joseph in the pit 20 years ago, aren't you? I'm surprised Benjamin hadn't been pummeled by this point, right? Because Jacob is continually provoking his sons to anger in the way that he shows favoritism. And maybe you grew up with a dad like this. This is your never satisfied dad. You're never proud of you, dad. You're never say, I love you, dad. More hurtful words to you than helpful words to you. And it has left a wound for you. Maybe you're currently this type of father. And the words of a father to his children are powerful, negative and hurtful words, harm, positive and productive words can bless. So I have two season tickets to Carolina basketball games. I don't know why. I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. All right. But I go and I take my kids and I've started taking them one at a time. So it's this intentional way for me. I'm not taking them to stuff they enjoy. They're young. They can go with me, right? To the things I enjoy. So it's really my ploy to try to get them to like sports. So I jack them up on candy. I buy them whatever they want and I'm trying to get them to like sports. And so I took my four-year-old son first and we normally make it to about halftime. He's ready to go all jacked up on candy. Then I took uh, my middle daughter, Hyatt, who's seven. She has a blast. She gets into it. She's booing refs. It's awesome. She's the one that's actually like liking sports. And then this past Wednesday, I took Durham, who's my 10-year-old. And so on Monday, I look at Durham and I say, Durham, baby, Wednesday, we're going, just me and you, right? I'm trying to build some excitement. Well, here comes my seven-year-old crying, Daddy, when you told, um, when me and you went, you didn't say hi yet. We're going in two days, right? I'm like, oh, like I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm telling you what, and, and look, that's a minor thing, right? Where I just look at her and be like, come on, but she hears everything. She hears how I talk to her siblings. She hears how I talk to her mom. She hears the words that I use. I saw an article this week where a grown lady said that, When she was little, her mom would sew her some dresses. She said, but I didn't know I was beautiful in that dress until my dad told me I was beautiful in that dress. So my mom would make it and say, honey, you look so beautiful. And she would say, let's wait till dad gets home. So then dad would come home and they would eat at the supper table. And after they would eat, the mom would look at Mary and she would nod at her. And Mary would run upstairs. She'd put her dress on. She'd run back downstairs. And her dad would say, you look beautiful. Beautiful, Mary. And she said, in that moment, I knew I was beautiful. 
because my dad told me. I read that article, and in a comment under that same article, I read a lady that said, my dad told me they gave me the wrong baby at the hospital. You were supposed to be a boy. And she said, I love my dad. He was a pastor. He did a lot of great things for a lot of people. But that comment stuck with me for 50 years. So I want you to think about Reuben. When his dad, Jacob, looks at him and says, Benjamin's the only son I have. Breaks him, wounds him. Next verse, 43, moving to another chapter. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. So a few months go by. A few more months go by. They're starting to starve again. They're starting to run out of food again. The family is getting hungry. So Jacob, being the, this is sarcasm, courageous, active leader and patriarch that he is, looks at his sons and says, go get us some more food. You, you guys go get us some more food. Father wound number three, Jacob is passive. We talked about this several weeks ago if you were here. We didn't spend enough time on it. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it here. But we talked about Jacob's passivity. He was passive 20 years ago, and he's passive now. When his sons returned from Egypt and had money in their sacks, the Bible says that Jacob was terrified, and he reacted with passivity. Let me tell you what a leader would have done. Let me tell you what a grown man father would have done. He just said, that guy in Egypt thinks you're lying. Go get the camels. Go get Benjamin. We're going to Egypt, and we're going to prove to him that we are who we say we are. And I'm going with you. Well, he blew that. He blew that chance. He didn't do that, and so he overreacted. He uses hurtful words. He breaks Reuben in half with his words. Now he gets another chance. Grain is running out. Family's hungry. I just want to look at Jacob and say, get off your lazy can, Jacob. And if this wasn't church, I'd use another word and go do something. Get your kids with you. Get the sons. You're Abraham's grandson. Do something. Get some people to rally the troops, rally your family and go to Egypt. Do something. Quit standing on the sidelines and watching and get in. And Jacob looks at his wounded sons and. I want you to think about his sons. Every time they go to Egypt, they come back with more money in their pockets, but they're missing a brother. Every time, right? 20 years ago, they went, they come back with more money because they sold Joseph 20 pieces of silver. No Joseph. 20 years later, they go to Egypt. They come back with more money in their sacks. No Simeon. Why would you turn it over to these guys again, Jacob? Lead and do something. You need to hear this, especially if you're a man in a room. The core sin of a man is being passive. The core sin, the chief sin of a man is being passive. It started in Genesis 3 when Adam stood there while Eve sinned and ate the apple. That's the debate, right? Who sinned first, the woman or the man? All the men are like, the woman did it, right? Adam's standing there doing nothing, watching And ever since then, there's been this temptation for men to stand by and watch, to be passive and watch, to give their responsibility to someone else, whether it's in the workplace or in the home or in the church. And what happens when a man won't lead is usually a great lady steps in to lead. She steps in and she fills that gap. Where's the lady in our story? Where's Rachel? She's not there. 
She passed away when Benjamin was born several years ago. Leah's not even mentioned anymore until after she dies, the other wife of Jacob. So there is no lady. And so now Judah, the fourth brother in the line of brothers, the fourth brother is going to step in. And he's going to try to lead. Verse 3. But Judah said, the man was serious when he warned us, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. Judah's like, dad, I know it's been a few months, but in case you forgot, Simeon's still there in jail. All right. This guy means business. Verse four. If you send Benjamin with us, we will go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. Remember, the man said, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. So Judah, fourth-born son, starts to take the lead of this family. I want you to remember Judah. He's a key figure over the next couple of weeks. He's the line that Jesus is going to come from. Okay, key guy here. He's made his mistakes, but he's starting to turn the corner. Jacob's response, verse 6. Why were you so cruel to me, Jacob Moon? Why did you tell him you had another brother? Jacob's like, why didn't you just lie? He was doing this 20 years ago. He was doing this 50 years ago. Why didn't you just lie? Why did you tell him about Benjamin? Why are you doing this to me? Father wound number four, Jacob consistently sets a poor example for his sons. This is not just a snapshot out of Jacob's life. This is the longevity of his life is showing this, this poor example that he sets for his kids. And this is where the meaning of names in the Bible is so important. So I got a joke about the meaning of names. You you ready? It's funny, so laugh, okay? Uh, So there's this woman, she's three months pregnant, and she goes into a deep coma. She goes into this really deep coma, and for six months later, she's in in coma for six months. When she wakes up, she's not pregnant anymore, and she's freaking out, like, what happened to my kids? So the doctor comes in and says, relax, relax, you had twins. You just had twins, and your brother was here to name them. And she's like, not my brother. She's like, I'm sure my brother's going to be a great uncle, but he's an idiot. And the last thing I want is him naming my kids. She said, what did he name them? So, well, the first one came out and it was a girl and he named her Denise. And she's like, Denise, that's not that bad. I mean, there's worse names in the world, right? Denise. So what did he name the other one? So the other one came out and it was a boy and he named him the nephew. (laughs) Some of y'all get that one on the way home. Denise. And the nephew. And so Jacob's name is not Denise. Jacob's name is not the nephew. What's Jacob's name? What's it mean? Deceiver. And he did it 50 years ago with Esau when he stole the birthright. And he's doing it 50 years later in Egypt telling his sons, why didn't you just deceive them? Why didn't you just lie? Consistently setting a poor example for his sons. His sons are not able to look to him for how a real man operates. His son aren't able to look to their father to see character and integrity and true manhood. Consistently setting a poor example. Let's finish the story up. Verse eight, Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will be on our way. Otherwise we'll all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones, I personally guarantee Benjamin's safety. Now, do you see the difference between Judah's response and Reuben's? Judah's calm. He's leading. Reuben's like, you can kill everybody. I'll bring, you know, that Judah's like, no, 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 no. I'll personally responsible. Then let me bear the blame forever. If I don't bring him back, if we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. That doesn't sound passive from Judah, does it? 
Judah's starting to act like a man. He's rejecting passivity. He's not standing around watching. He's willing to lead courageously. He's willing to take personal responsibility. He's made plenty of mistakes, but he's stepping up to lead. Verse 11, so their father finally said to them, if it can't be avoided, then at least do this. Pack your bags with the best products of this land. Take them down to the man as gifts, balm, honey, gum, resin, pistachio nut. Who does Jacob think he's going to impress with gum and pistachio nuts? He's going to the leader of Egypt. Right. But this is the closest thing to a good idea he's had. So let's give him a little bit of credit. Take some gum down there. Maybe you'll not kill everybody. Then take your brother. He says, take double the money that was put back in your sacks. Then take your brother, Benjamin, and go back to the man. Verse 14, we can finally give Jacob some credit. Jacob says, may God almighty. Where was God? 10 years ago, Jacob, I don't know, but may God almighty give you mercy. This is the first time the word mercy is used in scripture. May God almighty give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. So Jacob finally is relinquishing some control to God, but he spent decades, he spent Years wounding his children, leaving them with deficits that they have to deal, they have to work through. So I imagine uh, as you're sitting here, maybe maybe there's some father wounds that uh, you didn't know you had. Maybe they were just kind of shown today. Maybe they were kind of reopened today. I don't want to just leave us there. Okay, I want to spend a little more time on our application this morning. You've got a spot on your outline for this, and I want you to. I'm going to speak to some different groups. Okay, everybody in here has had a father, but we've all over the map with what kind of situation that was like. And so I want to speak to the different groups. And when I hit your group, that's a chance for you to apply this. First group today, current fathers. If you're a current father and kids still live in your house, that's the first group I'm going to talk to. They desperately need you. They desperately need your time. The average American father spends 40 minutes a week of quality time with their children. 40 minutes a week. You spend 40 minutes with your television set daily, 40 minutes a week. But I work and and I put money in the bank and I put clothes on their backs and I put food in their mouths and all that stuff is great. They need you. They need uninterrupted, intentional time with dad. They need you to affirm them. They need to hear, I love you. They need to hear, I'm proud of you. They need to hear you say that they are good at things. Even Jesus got this from God. When Jesus got baptized, what does God say to Jesus? This is my son with who I am well pleased. If Jesus needed that from God, how much more do your little sinful kids need it? Right? From you. Just affirmation. And I don't mean you tell them they're great at stuff they're not good at. Your kid can't catch and throw. Don't tell them he's an all-star. I'm not saying that. I'm saying find some stuff they're good at and affirm them in it. Whatever they're good at, affirm them in it. They need your positive words. They need discipline. They need boundaries. They need safety. They need a father that rejects passivity. They need a dad that rejects the temptation to stand around and watch. They need you to lead, especially in your relationship with Jesus. They need to see you meeting with Jesus. They need to see you with a Bible open in your lap or a Bible app on your phone. And here's the thing. You're going to wound them. There's going to be times where you cross the line and you wound them. And in those moments is this wonderful opportunity to model the gospel to them. 
to say, that, hey, daddy crossed the line right there. I'm sorry. Do you see how much your daddy needs Jesus? And you point them to him. Be vulnerable with them. Maybe your kids are grown and out of the house. It's not too late. Maybe today you realize, man, I wounded my, my kids there. Call them. What a blessing that would be for your grown father, grown son or daughter to get that from their father. Maybe you're a grandparent. You got this new opportunity to show God to your grandkids. And so take advantage of that. Second group. There's another group in here that had a great father. This is group in here that grew up with great dads and you sit here while I'm preaching about it and you're trying to rack your brain. How did my dad wound me? How did my dad wound me? I can't even really think of anything. You need to get on your knees and you need to thank God for that dad. You need to call him today and you need to say, hey, my crazy preacher talked about you and talked about how good dads are. Thank you. Thank you. Because you don't realize the blessing that that is. And then there's a third group. A third group that has father wounds. And some of them were revealed today. Some of them were reopened today. And you've got these deficits because of who your father was. And I think there's really three options for this group. I think there's three options for you. I think the first one, you can live in denial. You can just deny it and you can continue to press it down and you won't get any better. You just won't. You'll get more bitter. You won't get any better. So I don't advise that when you, number two, you can be a victim. You can spend your whole life just blaming your dad. That's the psycho babble stuff people will give you, right? You just blame your dad for everything that you have no control in this life. And so you just play the victim and you use the fact that your dad wasn't a good guy to justify your sin. And you say, well, my dad did it. And so I can't help him. My dad drank. I, you're playing the victim. I know it's hard, but that's not the healthiest option. The third option is the one I think scripture recommends. It's the one I would recommend, which is moving towards redemption. You're going to have to make some choices, some difficult, but necessary choices. The first one you're going to have to do is you're going to have to choose to forgive. There's this recognition of the gospel of how much you have been forgiven. And scripture over and over and over again says, remember how much you've been forgiven in your forgiveness of others. You might have to choose to do that with your dad or with your mom or with whoever has wounded you. This is reality that 95% of dads, even though they wound, they're doing the best they can. They're just doing the best they can do. They're not intentionally wounding you, but they've wounded you. There's a great verse in Hebrews that gives us this. Hebrews 12, verse 9 and 10, it says, Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father and live forever? Verse 10, here's the key one. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. Scripture's giving your dad the benefit of the doubt. He said he did the best he could. That's 95% of dads. It was unintentional. He had his own job. He had his own marriage. He had his own responsibilities. He's trying to figure out how to put food on the table. He's trying to figure out how to discipline you the right way. He's trying to get you to church. He's trying to do these things. It's the vast majority of dads. And so we choose to forgive them. We choose to give them the benefit of the doubt. But then there's the 5% of dads. There's just 5 to 10% who really screwed this thing up. Maybe they left. Maybe they completely abandoned the family, maybe they were hurtful and selfish and abusive. Maybe it was intentional, just horror stories. And they're just not a very good person. And they're not seeking forgiveness. 
they don't even acknowledge that they inflicted wounds on you in the first place. And you're saying, wait, I got to do something with that. Here's what I would challenge you to do. I would challenge you to forgive, but at the very least, I would challenge you to release it to God's judgment. That you release it to God's justice. It will do your heart wonders to forgive them. At the very least, you have to choose to release it over to God, whether it's a father wound or a mother wound or a spouse wound or a boss wound or a friend wound or an enemy wound. Give it to him. It's what Joseph did. What did Joseph name his oldest son? Remember? Starts with the M. Manasseh. And he says, Manasseh means I've forgotten all my troubles. You need to let God Manasseh you. You can't fix it yourself. Give it to him. Great verse in Romans. Never pay back evil with more evil. And so God is saying, I know evil has happened to you. I acknowledge that your dad was a cruel and evil person to you. But don't pay back evil with evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. This should be a blessing for you. If you really have an enemy, if you really have somebody that's done evil to you, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. It's God's justice. You can't hold this hateful spirit. It's going to eat you from the inside out. You got to release it to God. He's going to make things right. Last one. You might have to choose to reconcile. You might need, God might be asking you to take the first step in reconciliation. Last story. So there's a guy named Shay Sumlin. He's a pastor in Texas. He steps up to the pulpit on Father's Day about five or six years ago. And he steps up to the thing to start preaching. And before he starts preaching, there's a video that's played behind him. And it's a tape recording. And on the tape recording is these little boys. And they're talking to their dad. They're leaving a tape recording for their dad. Here's what it says. This is typical banter between boys as they try to get the next word into their dad. Daddy, I went fishing with a fishing pole of mine. Daddy, I mowed the lawn. I caught a turtle. And the brother pipes in, shut up. No, you shut up. I'm talking, right? This happened in your house. There's this back and forth between brothers as they try to leave a message for their dad. And finally they say, happy Father's Day, dad. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I wish you could come to our house and stay forever. So the tape recording ends as Shay Sumlin steps into the pulpit and says, the video you just saw, the video you just heard was a recording that my brothers and I made for my dad for Father's Day 34 years ago. So he's my age, 37, 38, stepping up to the mic. He says, the recording you just heard was me as a three or four-year-old leaving a message to my dad. What you don't know is that two months before I made that message, my dad left our family with his secretary. So we're leaving him a tape recording. He said, for the past 34 years since that recording was made, I've been working through the implications of what it means to grow up in a home without a father. He dealt with a father wound, a father deficit for his entire life, but he made a choice to reconcile. He talked about how hard it was, and he said, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and after 31 years, I sent my dad an email, and I said, Dad, would you be willing to come sit with me and my brothers in a room face-to-face and talk about what happened? Hit send on email. He said, within a day, I had a reply from my dad said, I'll fly in this weekend. So his dad flies in, they sit and talk for hours. And Shay made a list of 18 significant things his dad had missed. Little league games, his first date, his prom, the birth of his three daughters. He said, I missed you being there, but I forgive you 
and I love you. Can you imagine how hard that was for Shay Sumlin? Shay said, I wish I could tell you in that moment that the glory of God dropped right here in the living room. Doves came down and we started line dancing and shouting praises. He said, I wish I could tell you that since we've gone, since that we've gone on eight father son fishing trips and it's been awesome. He said, none of those things happened. The reality is I've seen my dad only a handful of times since then. My dad never said he was sorry, but I can't tell you how much healing it gave me to sit in a room and for the first time in my life, look my dad in the eyes and tell him how I felt, but I forgive you. Release me. Manasseh me. So maybe it isn't possible for you to sit down with your dad and reconcile for one of many reasons, but you can ask your heavenly father to reconcile your heart. I don't know how he does that. I just know he does. He's in this supernatural reconciliation business. I don't know how he does it, but I know he'll do it. So all of these wounds, whether it's father wound or mother wound or everybody in the room's self-inflicted wounds where you've chosen sin, should point us to Jesus. Last verse before we worship. Isaiah 9, 6. This is an incredible verse. This is one you should memorize. Isaiah 9, 6. It's talking about Jesus. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. The government's not resting on Donald Trump's shoulders. It's not resting on Bernie Sanders' shoulders. It's not resting on Elizabeth Warren's shoulders. It rests on Jesus Christ's shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Jesus is called your Everlasting Father. And he didn't come to wound you. He came to wound himself for you. And some of you, some of us have been waiting an entire life for a dad to say, I love you, or for a mom to say, I love you, or that I'm proud of you, or to affirm you, or for somebody of the opposing sex to tell us that. And here's Jesus coming and saying, I'm telling you, you're affirmed. I'm telling you, you're loved. I'm telling you, you're a son or daughter of the king because of my work on the cross. And I know you fully. I know all your secrets. So that's what we choose to put our hope in. That your hope is not in your earthly father. Your hope is in your heavenly father. Let's pray. Lord, You're, uh, you're in charge of microphones messing up and <laughs> distractions that we have. And you're in charge and in control of who our father was, who our father is. Lord, you're sovereign over all of that. And yet I know today we just, we just really scratched the surface of some of these wounds. And uh, I, I still want to leave people wounded. I want to help them. I want to give them the resources that they need. And so I want them to hear, Lord, as I, even as I pray to you, the number of resources that we have, if they would just be brave enough, around their connect card, hey, send me, some, send me some resources. I got more than they can read in a month on how to heal, on how to forgive, on how to reconcile. I know there's folks in the room who just need somebody to pray with. I'm not Matt and Alyssa Coggle to be in the back. Maybe somebody during the worship just needs to go and say, hey, would you pray for me? This really brought up some old stuff. I just need you to pray for me. Be happy to do that. We're going to sing some songs about about wounds. Let's sing a song that your wounds heal us. 
that we have wounds, some of them from other people gave us, some of them we gave to ourselves, and yet you came and you wounded yourself to heal us from ours. So we celebrate that this morning. Or we pray that you would meet us here as we worship. Imagine there's some of us just need to come take communion today and thank you for your work on the cross that calls us a son, a daughter, co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. So we pray and we ask all these things in your great name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.